Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here, and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we are talking about the topic of why everything other than price makes or breaks a deal. And this is a two-part series. So today you are listening to part one. And we have here to talk to us today, Stephen Groves, who is a director at Quinn M&A, which deals with mid-market transactions and the sale, merger, acquisition and valuation advice for business dealing in this mid-market space. I hope you find these part one and part two interesting. We traverse a lot of topics that maybe are not front of mind for buyers and sellers at many points and really should be. And in part one, we also talk about some of the issues that advisors in this space often face in relation to how it is that they can ensure that they're properly remunerated for thinking about the long-term benefit of their clients in this space. So I think you'll find this uh, or these two episodes really useful listening. And today we're launching into part one. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, Stephen. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. I'm really looking forward to this discussion because it sounds a little bit controversial. Why is everything other than the price the thing that makes or breaks a deal? I'm interested. Let's get into it. Um, It's a really interesting area. You're right. And it is rather controversial. (laughs) So many of my clients have that sat there in front of me and said, why the hell do we need to worry about anything other than getting the most money that we possibly can? And uh, certainly there's a lot of value to that way of thinking. But in my experience, there are so many intricate terms that get thrown into transactions that um, really do put a spatter in the works and make some deals just unsuitable. Yeah. And I think I I just want to highlight that point because I think you're absolutely right. I think um, it can be quite easy. A lot of acquirers are very good at preparing spreadsheets, you know, and a lot of the times it will be what these business looks like in terms of numbers and therefore the negotiation becomes, you know, a lot of the negotiation becomes about price or how, how that payment is made and maybe that's some of what we're talking about today. But but the price element, I think you're absolutely right. We, we really need to try and take a step back and realise price isn't everything because sometimes a higher price for um, a, a seller can also have risk associated with it. So there may be very many reasons why a seller might be better not always getting the top dollar and not being totally focused on price. And and I guess the same from a buyer's perspective as well. Absolutely. Look, a, a price on a piece of paper is wonderful, but the terms that go along with that can make or break that price and make or break, break the transaction. It's it's a really interesting area. And there's so many, so many factors that come into this. I mean, things like warranties are an interesting area. And, and of course, yourself as a lawyer, I'm sure mm. um, that comes we up. We spent a lot of time in this area of I, warranties I, and indemnities. I bet. <laughs> I bet. It's, um, I, I remember a, a transaction that I was advising on about six months ago now, and uh, we had three very good offers come in. 
Uh, one of them was a couple of million dollars above uh, the other two offers at, at about 18 million. Uh, however, the offer at 18 million was loaded with a whole host of very strict and mm. quite frankly un- unreasonable and uncommercial warranties. Now, um, warranties generally, as, as, as I know you would be aware, Joanna, cover off on simple things like, for example, do the shareholders own the shares and do they have the right to, to sell the shares? Now, warranties like that are fine. As soon as, a, as soon as a buyer seeks warranties that require, for example, a major customer to be secured into the future or require that every member of a management team is going to be around for the next five years, those types of warranties are just unreasonable to most sellers. And accordingly, regardless of the higher price, they just don't don't get any traction. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating because I think there's just, I guess that introduces this general concept of reasonableness as well because quite often I find that uh, where cookie-cutter approaches are taken, and, of course, um, you, you know, many acquirers will have a, a template term sheet or, or a template approach to each acquisition, but each acquisition is different. And uh, lawyers will have the standard templates that they draw from, but I think part of the issue that can occur in many transactions is the failure of the parties, whether it's the solicitors or the um, the uh, the buyers or any of the other parties involved to step back and say, well, what is what is relevant and useful for this transaction when we're reflecting on what the asset value is and how we're going to protect that asset value of that this particular business as opposed to every other, you know, 30 or 40 businesses that we've used that that we've been acquiring or using a similar approach to. And and I guess stepping then from the seller's perspective, it's about themselves being able to conduct a risk assessment as to whether taking on a higher purchase price um, is is worth it in terms of what they're giving up from a risk perspective. And what's your perspective on that, I guess, Stephen? I absolutely agree. In my practice, I find it to be remarkably useful when offering companies to the market for sale to request that when bidders place forward an offer, um, they address a whole host of items, one of them obviously being price and value. But uh, one of the factors that I always ask bidders to address is what warranties they would like to incorporate in the contract for sale. That's interesting. Look, it, it really... Right up front. Absolutely. Okay. Oh. Bidders generally, uh, depending on, uh, firstly, what jurisdiction they're in. So bidders over in the United States, as an example, they love loading up their contracts full of warranties. Mm. They, they quite enjoy going out and seeking warranty insurance sometime, sometimes, mm. which, is, which is actually okay. I don't mind when uh, bidders look to ensure their warranties. But bidders from Australia typically are a little bit more relaxed with relation to warranties. But if we don't know where they're heading at the outset, uh, it's very difficult to assess any price or offer. Mm. And, uh, when we receive it, so it's it's remarkably important to know upfront. Mm, okay, and then how how do you work with your sellers through that process in terms of assessing, you know, say for example, a higher value offer that has you know a high level of warranties that they are asking for versus a perhaps a lower offer that you know has less stringent warranties. Do you, do you try and reduce these to formulas and come up with some? ultimate number calculation? What's your approach? It really varies on clients. So, some clients are quite happy to take on a reasonable level of of risk through warranties in order to achieve a high price. And so long as they're well advised and informed as to what the risk is, which is uh, something that I think is my job and also the job of their legal counsel, then that's fine. 
However, it pays to go at it in a, in a granular manner. So um, what I mean by that is to look through each warranty, to look at what that warranty means to the business that is the subject matter of, of the sale and to see what the risks are accordingly. So um, if there is a, a warranty which might require management to be in place for uh, the next three years, that's fine if the sellers are comfortable that management will be in place for the next three years and they're happy to put in place some type of retention bonus scheme in order to guarantee or hopefully guarantee that that will happen. Mm. Um, but for some other companies, that might just be an obscene request and it might not work. So it, it really does depend from matter to matter as to what will work and what won't. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, you know, implicit in what you're saying there as well is perhaps it's not just evaluating the um, the price and warranty position. It's also then getting creative about perhaps some of the risk that's created by warranties and thinking of other ways sometimes that you can deal with or transfer or reduce this, this risk, which is interesting. And at the end of the day, uh, if there's a warranty that is going to be a deal breaker, uh, it's an easy conversation to have with a bidder to say, look, this warranty just does not work for us. Um, we will not agree to it. We'll do a transaction if you remove that warranty and just to see what the response is from the bidder. Some bidders might turn around and say, look, we understand your position and we're happy to remove that. Other bidders might turn around and say, look, if we remove that warranty, um, our price will be adjusted accordingly or we'd like Mm. to introduce a new term being uh, along these lines. It really depends. The conversation needs to be had. And at least by getting an indication as to what the warranties uh, will be at the outset when an offer is received, those conversations can be had quite early on so that transactions don't fall over the 11th hour as part of contract negotiations or final due diligence. Mm. Okay, fabulous. All right. Well, look, I think that's a good look into warranties as something other than price that we should be thinking about. I absolutely love your tip there about you getting that up front. That's a, that's a good one. What else do you think is uh, is important outside of the price from your perspective? One of the really interesting areas, Joanna, and and I found uh, in my experience not many people look into this, but it's a really simple one. It's just that buyers, some buyers are unsuited. Now, it can be for a, a range of different reasons. I remember about a year ago now, I was running a transaction and uh, my clients were a very large organisation and they were selling off a small component of their business. And uh, that small component of their business had a supply contract with a company. So they use company X for services, uh, quite quite integral services for the business's operation. And uh, as part of the sales process, company X placed forward a bid. And so did a number of other companies. The bid from company X was the best bid that we'd received so far as price. Mm-hmm. However, uh, my clients had had significant issues with dealing with company X as a supplier for a number of years. They were very concerned about um, the way in which Company X operated and their uh, modus operandi, how how they went about business. And um, on that basis, they just weren't comfortable with selling to Company X. And um, regardless of the price, uh, I I got very, very firm advice from my clients. Look, we, we don't care what the offer is so far as price. We just don't want to sell to them. But the interesting thing about that situation, Company X, because they wanted to buy the business so badly, they made a, a really high offer, which put us in a position where we could turn around to other buyers that hadn't made such generous offer offers and push them to raise their offers, even though we knew that we were never going to sell to Company X. But it really um, 
uh, drove a bit of benefit in the transaction process from having them involved in any case. I love it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a really interesting one. But e- even there's, there's, there's another very basic area that I find a, a lot of my clients will have major contracts with customers that as part of a transaction, whether it's a sale of shares in the company or a sale of a business, the contracts still need to uh, require that the customer approves the assignment to the yeah. purchaser. Yeah. Now, I'm sure it's something that comes up in your practice all the mm. time. And, mm. and um, from my point of view, if it's apparent to me that the customer will not agree to assigning the contracts to the purchaser, mm. what's the point in selling or attempting to sell the business to the purchaser regardless of what the price is that they put down? Uh, the transaction will fall over. So um, having, having your eyes wide open uh, throughout uh, negotiations and discussions with interested parties, interested bidders is remarkably key and, and just using a bit of a common sense approach. Are they in the industry? Do they have experience? Can they can they service these contracts that we have or not? If they can't, then it's very likely that the customers will not agree to having the contracts assigned. And if that's the case, a deal just, just won't work. Mm. And it's such a good point you make here um, because we've seen in many instances this come up as an issue, whether it's in the negotiation phase or indeed, you know, particularly between exchange and completion as we're trying to complete the transaction. I think the, the first thing I have to say here is this is where really strong prior planning can assist where you have the opportunity because in in many instances, you know, organisations don't even really realise that they have these clauses within their customer contracts. And there's many organisations who are in the position where they're quite often signing client-side contracts. Uh, So, you, you know, that they've had to sign their client or customer's contracts and and they just don't realise that there is this um, clause that prevents them from assigning or requires consent for change of control or, or whatever the you know particular issue is. So, so I think prior planning is something can, that can really assist here in terms of identifying these areas in advance long enough so that you're able to catch them these contracts before they roll over again and quite often you need to do that years in advance because it can become a bit obvious if you're heading out and uh, trying to then holus bolus change all of your clients' contracts to pull out that clause. <laughs> but, you know, if Absolutely. it's a approach. <laughs> Preliminary due diligence I find is the most useful exercise any prospective company seller can undertake. Now, that that encompasses a whole host of factors. But in essence, as part of it, anyone conducting a preliminary due diligence, um, the legal advisors, the tax advisors, the M&A advisors, the contracts need to be reviewed. Customer contracts need to be reviewed from top to bottom. And there needs to be a very clear understanding from all the advisors involved as to what the risks are associated with customer contracts because it can make or break a transaction. And, and that's just one piece of the puzzle. So it's remarkably import, important, like you say, to do that preparation work and investigation before running out to the market in a big rush yeah. so that you know exactly how it's going to play out and what the issues are that you're going to going to have to navigate when the deal's getting done. Yeah. And and I think the the other element also is is really being familiar with a, what a client or customer re- will require in order to approve uh, a new buy. And I'm particularly thinking here about many government contracts, which can be a complete pain in the butt, you, you know, but some of these things, you know, many government contracts can take months and months to get proper approvals. But that process then needs to 
that that timing needs to be built into the process. Absolutely. I mean, in my experience, more often than not, the transition of contracts is an item that needs to be ticked off in between exchange of contracts and completion. So they're normally conditions precedent to a transaction mm. completing. Mm. And um, if there's set timeframes put into the contract as to how long these things need to uh, have to take place and the timeframes and the contract are unreasonable, then from a seller's point of view, there's too much risk that a transaction will fall over even after the contracts have exchanged mm. because mm. if there's if there's a 21-day time limit put on customer contracts being approved for assignment and it's likely that that process will take a couple of months, mm. um, after 21 days, the buyer can walk away. Mm. Now, that's just, that's just too risky. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I guess when, when we're talking about assignment here, I, I think sometimes uh, as well, businesses don't quite understand the difference between the the assignment elements and the changing control because, you know, sometimes just looking at the, a different way of the deal being structured, for example, a business sale versus share sale can mop up some of these issues. So, there, there's creative ways to approach many things. So, I, I guess it's just worth throwing out there that Sometimes, depending on what our client contract clause issue actually is, there might be other ways to approach this. Absolutely. And it's a really complex area. And as you say, it depends on how the transaction is structured. In in my experience, uh, even when there is a a sale of shares in a company, um, a lot of customer contracts still require that if there's a majority change in ownership, that approval is is needed from a customer in order for the contract to uh, continue as per normal. So, there's it really requires, as we've just touched upon, for all advisors to um, do some proper preparation before going mm-hmm. out to the market to understand exactly what the obligations are on the seller when it mm-hmm. comes to uh, completing the transaction and making sure the customers continue to uh, continue to use the company moving forward. But here's the issue. I mean, this is often the rub. I find that um, businesses as a whole aren't great at getting their ducks in a, in a row early enough. You know, I, I find thinking about sale can be a very emotional process in that when people think about sale and they suddenly get so excited by it that they want to do it now, you know. <laughs> of course, everyone wants to sell yesterday, right? Yeah, as, soon yeah, as, yeah. as soon as the time's right, the time's right, and it's going to happen. But, so it's there's, there's, so there's, hard to get in early enough. I think that's a problem. Look, there's there's an old, there's an old saying that my dad used to throw around all the time, and I've never forgotten it. It's the longest way around is sometimes the shortest way home, and it's absolutely true yeah, for right. um, M and A work, brokerage work. Um, take your time, take one yeah. step at a time and do things properly. There's no substitute for it. And, and rushing rushing a process is just going to end up in tears and, and, and a horrible outcome and it will probably take longer than what it would do otherwise. Yeah. Now, I don't want to take us off on a tangent, but I will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll just do it quickly and then we'll come back to what we, we're actually talking about here. But, but it's a really good point you make about the long road. But I, the way many advisors in this space are remunerated works against the process of wanting to take the long road. What What's your opinion on that and how do you deal with that, you know, that, that as an issue? Yeah, sure. Um, look, my, my opinion is that we're professionals, we need to give advice and we need to do things properly. Now, um, to do that, um, we need to charge fees appropriate with the work that we need to do. And I'm very passionate about the fact that one of the most important things that a prospective company seller can do is to conduct a preliminary due diligence exercise. So, I... uh, 
almost mandate that my clients do that. If they want to go to market, I say, look, that's fine. I'm happy to take you out to the market for a sales process. But before we go ahead, we really need to put your company through the ringer and conduct the preliminary due diligence exercise for all of these reasons that we've discussed just now. And so what if that identifies issues though? Because I mean, presumably it must in many instances. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it becomes a process of saying, okay, look, these are the issues. Um, be aware that these issues uh, will probably play out like this if you run out to the market and try and sell now. Uh, that's a risk. If you're happy to take that risk on, we all know what the risk is and that's better than not knowing. Uh, we can certainly go out and run a transaction for you, but be aware. Alternatively, uh, there's some steps that you can take and it involves uh, more often than not getting in some other professionals in order to provide assistance to rectify problems or mitigate risk factors. That process might take a bit of time. It could take 12 months. It could take 18 months, two years. Sometimes they're easy fixes though. Sometimes mm. it's just a matter of quickly tidying up some contracts, mm. getting some getting some uh, fixes in place from a structuring point of view so that tax issues aren't as obscene as what they need to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, that can take a few months and away we go. Yeah. But but it's you don't know what you don't know. So you need to go through the process of figuring mm. out what the risks are. And then, in my experience, clients who are informed feel a lot more comfortable about taking risks on because at least they know what they are. And if they want to run out to the market, that's fine. If they're happy to take the time, then perfect. It creates a better outcome long term. Mm. And so, and can I ask, are you remunerated then by retainer along the way or is it all um, is it all contingent on the sale? Look, I generally charge my clients professional fees for pre-sale advice and I do it as a standalone project with the idea being that they get the advice, they see exactly what the risks are and what the issues are in their company. Based on that, if they want to complete a transaction, it's completely up to them as to whether they want to engage us to run a transaction process for them. So I do the pre-sale advice as a standalone engagement. And from there, if they do want to go out and complete a transaction, uh, we go ahead and we do it and we generally charge a retainer and a success fee like a lot of other mm. transaction advisors do. Mm. Um, so we like to consider ourselves as being independent, quite pragmatic advisors mm. for the pre-sale due diligence process. And as much as possible, we want to show our clients all the problems mm. uh, before they commit to running a transaction process with us. Otherwise, more often than not, if it's, if it's just a case of quickly running out to the market, problems come up, everyone's trying to do a last-minute fix to solve issues, mm. clients can scratch their head and go, oh, Stephen, you should have known about this, you should have picked mm. this up earlier on. And it, it is the issue, isn't it, then, you know, because, you know, particularly where, you know, most of these sale processes are a long process for, from start to finish. Even once you've found the buyer, they can take a while, you know, mm. but still getting ready and then finding the buyer, obviously, you know, can be a lengthy process as well. And I just speak to so many people in this industry who have so many stories to tell about, you know, that deal that took one year or two years and then fell over, you know, and, and I think that's the, like, that's the critical point, isn't it? You know, and, and I think, you know, number one, building in a model for yourself where you're remunerated to be able to focus on that front side of readiness component makes absolute sense. Um, it's just, I know that a lot of people in the industry find it very hard to balance. Um, so I, I think it's good discussions to have to hear what people are doing and, and how 
you try and solve that riddle. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're we're lucky as a as a as a practice, we do do a, a fair bit of buy side work as well. So buy side advisory. So we we know mm. what it's like to be on the other side of a deal, and accordingly, from a due diligence point of view, we pick things up because we basically put on the hat of being a a hypothetical buyer and 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 look at the company in that light. And it's a really interesting process to go through, and it normally uncovers some really interesting factors for for everyone to deal with in in the transaction. Brilliant. Okay. Well, look, I guess this is the end of part one of our two-part series (laughs) on why everything other than price makes or breaks a deal. I think we've covered some really important topics here. We really dug into this area of warranties, which is a very topical area, certainly in our office as well. And and also this topic of buyers being unsuited. And then, of course, we had a little bit of a discussion uh, on the side about the remuneration model and, and and how we can provide the most value, but also, uh, you know, be remunerated correctly for that. Um, in part two, we're going to talk about some more things. What are we going to cover, Stephen, in part two? Uh, look, I'm keen to have a chat about payment terms. It's a really interesting area that um, normally can cause issues with deals. And uh, I'll tell a little story about a deal that I did that required my clients to move their business location internationally and accordingly. Gosh. Okay. I'm looking forward to that one. Yes. Um, how do our listeners contact you if they're interested in um, getting information about working with you or, or talking about this area more? Thanks, Joanna. Uh, I'm a director at Quinn M&A. So you, your listeners can either Google Quinn M&A or visit us at www.quinn ma.com.au. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to having you back for part two, Stephen. Thanks, Joanna. Same here. Well, that's it for part one of our two-part episode all about why everything other than the price can make or break a deal. Of course, in this episode, we talked about warranties and uh, the buyer being unsuited to the transaction. And if you'd like more information about this topic, then all you need to do is head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com where you can get contact details for Stephen Groves at Quinn M&A. And of course, there you'll also be able to find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients are looking to get ready for an acquisition or for an exit. And finally, if you enjoyed what you heard today, then I'd love it if you could possibly pop over to your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. It really helps us spread the message further and wider if you leave us reviews. So we'd be ever so grateful if you do that. And hopefully you've already subscribed. And if you haven't, just press subscribe uh, on your favorite podcast player. Well, thanks again. We'll be back next week with part two of this series. Look forward to seeing you then. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen. 
that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. Thank you.